Climbing to the cockpit with pilot and Link Square's Chief Legal Officer, Tim Perilla, as he invites legal leaders aboard to share advice that will help you navigate even the most turbulent times of in-house counsel work. We'll cover a range of topics from data privacy to legal team structure to public company transactions and beyond. You don't want to miss this series. Fasten your seatbelt and prepare for takeoff. You're listening to Cockpit Council. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Cockpit Council. My name is Tim. I'm the Chief Legal Officer at Link Squares, and as always, we have our producer, Alyssa Verzino. Uh, today, Krista Russell is joining us, who works at Airbus OneWeb Satellites and also is a professor at University of Miami School of Law. Krista, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. So uh, let's we start out every episode the same way. What is your pre-flight ritual? All right, I was ready for this question. Um, All right. I did my research. <laughs> um, <laughs> since I was little, always step on the plane with the right foot. And anybody that's traveling with me, step on the plane with the right foot. It's not something that I made up in answer to this question. It's it's what I do every time. And if I'm traveling not for work, I like to have a glass of champagne before I get on the plane as well. Nice, nice. That's awesome. Um, any, any particular reason why the right foot and not the left? Um, no, I don't know how it started, but since I was young, my family traveled a lot, a reasonable amount when I was younger. So I was on planes a lot and I, I did it once and then I, I have always kept with it. And now like my children know they get on a plane right foot. <laughs> <laughs> my, awesome. my youngest might have learned right and left from getting on planes. <laughs> That's incredible. How many, how many kids do you have? Oh, you weren't ready for this question. <laughs> Seven. <laughs> Seven. Oh. So I have I have oh my three. Goodness. My husband has four. We have seven blended and most of the time have six in our house. My goodness, that has to be a very busy household. Yep, it's a circus for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, very cool. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about um, Airbus OneWeb Satellites. Uh, what can you tell us about the company and what can you tell us about your role there? Yeah, sure. So Airbus OneWeb Satellites is a joint venture between Airbus, the aerospace engineering manufacturing company, and OneWeb, which is a telecoms company. And our joint venture was created for the purpose of designing and mass manufacturing low earth orbit uh, telecommunications satellites. Um, we're slowly kind of expanding, perhaps beyond what that mission might be. But that's what we've historically done and, and what we do now um, in the production. Um, we have a manufacturing facility right uh, here in Florida where my office is located down on the Space Coast um, and an office in Toulouse, France as well. So we have uh, team, team members on, on both sides of the pond. Um, my job when I came into the company was um, as an associate general counsel, um, I manage the transactional activities of our entire supply chain. So um, we have a monosource supply chain. So there's a lot of effort into supply chain sustainability and, and maintenance, um, obviously initial contracting and any um, revisions or changes to those contracts and you know anything on the active steady state management side as well. Um, that's more or less still 75% what I do. I've, I've moved into a deputy GC role now. So my scope, my scope is a little bit more broad now and I handle some other general corporate matters. Um, but for the large part, my focus um, and that of my team, it's a pretty small team, um, uh, is on the transactional activities through our supply chain as we move from what initially was like a one customer environment to now a, a multiple customer, multiple program environment. That's awesome. How big is your uh, legal team? Uh, it's pretty small. We have 
11 members of our legal department, but there are only four attorneys. Oh, that's cool. What are the other, uh, what are the other seven folks doing? So we have a lot that work in compliance export uh, control generally because we are um, a multinational company and we're working in a yet to be super regulated, but anticipating more and more regulations coming um, in, in the space industry, um, plus managing you know, um, our supply chain, which works, uh, I think we're in 17 different countries, our supply suppliers right now. So kind of managing local uh, rules, regulations, ordinances, things as well. Very cool. So as far as the emerging regulatory environment, and feel free to to get into whatever level of detail you can or cannot get into. Uh, it's always an area of interest for me. I was at DraftKings for seven years and the government affairs work that uh, the daily fantasy sports companies did together as an industry it was is always really fascinating. And so I'm interested to hear if uh, if there's sort of industry groups uh, that you all are working with to help influence some of that regulation and, and how that's going. Yeah, um, so at, at our joint venture, we are largely just focused on manufacturing producing for our customers, but there is a high level involvement of that kind of like coalition of companies that are working to advance, um, you know, lobbying and 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 other parts of government regulation in, in how space will be managed. Um, there's a lot of competing interests. Um, it's a high capital industry and a lot Very of much. barriers to entry because of that. Um, so so there's a lot of thoughts about, you know, like making space accessible to everybody, but also, you know, making it in a way that is um, is mindful that it's <laughs> as big and open as space is by definition <laughs> that there is, we can't have a million things flying up in the sky without some sort of general standards um, for both orbiting and deorbiting, as well as, you know, space junk and everything else. So yeah, there, that's a very big um, part of the the overall industry is the collaboration with other companies and trying to influence how that looks. Yeah, We're just much that, more narrowly focused at, at RJV. That's an incredibly, uh, incredibly complicated topic, right? It um, is. Um, it's, it's, exciting and scary at the same time because of the the potential consequences of of failing to do it correctly um or perhaps being you know not mindful but that that is probably as true for you know, any other industry as well as just space is so new in the grand scheme of time um you know to us and accessible to us that um it, it can feel more consequential the position sounds absolutely fascinating uh how did you so how did you get to where you are tell us a little bit about your career path yeah you know it's um funny that you asked this question today in particular last night um, so i went to university of central florida i live in orlando now but i went to a couple other places before i kind of boomeranged back here um and ucf was actually founded with the mission in the 1960s of providing engineers um scientists you know tech technological specialists for NASA and the Kennedy Space Center, which is, you know, just an hour down the road. Um, and I took my kids to the first home opener of the football game last night as the first game as UCF is a big 12 member now. So it's a big deal for UCF alumni and there's space murals and um, references to space U, which is like a moniker that UCF sometimes goes by. Um, 
everywhere. And so my kids are like, mom, you went to UCF and you're a space lawyer, which I always say is like the coolest hashtag I've ever been associated with space lawyer. Uh, uh, so lucky. <laughs> I wish I had that. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, and like my, my daughter who is very curious and, and a very good conversationalist, even though she's very young, um, is like, did, did you know you were going to be a space lawyer when you went to UCF, which I thought was a very good question. And no, like complete, <laughs> it was not by design. I had no idea when I went to UCF that that's what its purpose was for. And as it just turned out, like I ended up being a lawyer through, you know, through UCF and then subsequently through law school. And now I work in the space, you know, industry. So all of that to say, no, it was not by design. I have been a supply chain lawyer my entire career so far. I've worked in house. Um, for my almost 15 years of practice exclusively um, in various industries. I've worked in real estate. I've worked for Broadway for a number of years. I worked for FedEx Logistics for a large chunk of my career prior to arriving at Airbus One Web Satellites. And I got to AOS through through great chance. I was ready to make a move from, from FedEx. I had been there for, for quite some time and I was really trying to get back to Florida. Um, I had young kids. I, I know you guys are up in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> I despise all things winter. I always uh, joke that I don't travel north in a month that ends in an R um, <laughs> because I just don't like the cold. And I was trying to get back here and it was just a perfect alignment of time and opportunity where this um, the position arose at, at AOS and it just fit perfect with um, the beginning of the COVID pandemic. I was hired shortly before that. Um, there was a relocation plan. Florida was like wide open during the pandemic, so it was easy to get here. I like found a house online, and it was all. <laughs> um, it just worked out really great. And so, um, yeah, it's it's really through my focus on um, supply chain and transactional work that led me to AOS. Very cool. Very cool. So, and as far as your professor role uh, at Miami, how did you how did you fall into that? Um, LinkedIn, to be honest with you, um, I have a pretty big platform on LinkedIn. I have been using LinkedIn since the beginning of the pandemic just to talk about um, in-house practice um, or general topics that come up for you know lawyers. I talk about lawyer mom life and like whether being a lawyer makes me a better mom or being a mom makes me a better lawyer. Um, and I just kind of started being quite vocal on the platform and. Um, Someone reached out to me and said, hey, there's this position at Miami Law. They're looking for someone who loves that like intersection of business and law and that can teach the practical side of lawyering and practicing to its law students. It's a one of a kind program in the country, a transactional skills department, um, whereby the entire focus, it's a two year focus for the second and third year of law school um, is on the actual practice of law and not necessarily the thinking like a lawyer part that that is traditionally focused on. That's awesome. And very fitting for uh, for our episode today, talking about skills that you didn't learn in law school. Um, tell us a little bit about the content of of the programming there uh, in, in at University of Miami. And what are some of your key tips, favorite things to talk about? Yeah, um, so the, the program, it's comprised of several different courses. Um, generally speaking, uh, there are three primary courses, transactional skills, one, two, and three. One focuses on um, everything you need to know about the contents of a contract and then drafting and negotiating you know, contracts. The second course is an M&A focused 
class whereby the entire semester you're going through an M&A transaction, everything from due diligence all the way through um, closing out the deal. And the third one is like everything else that could tangentially touch on transactional skills work. Um, I have chose to stay in the transactional skills one class because I really love the it, it's more students that it, it's a slightly bigger classes and i love just kind of having that impression i take a very different approach to teaching a very set class um i really like being um a very real professor i always tell my students like adjuncts are are they're different than academia professors you know your tenured professors that are coming in and they're teaching you by the book and they're teaching you the rules like i like teaching a class that has no rules right there's better ways right. to draft things there might be preferences in how you negotiate things. You might have a memo that you need to write for a partner or a senior associate that wants it this way and formatted this way, and they don't want any fluff in it. And you might, at your next job or next week for a different partner, have to write it a completely different way. So I try to teach the class entirely with very few rules and a lot of stylistic learnings and, and teachings that kind of help students take risks in developing their own style and then eventually learn the flexibility and adaptability to be able to, you know, make that work for whomever they're writing for. I talk a lot about uh, about how I view the practice of in-house law as distinct of a practice area as litigation is from, uh, you know, drafting patent applications and prosecuting patents. It's a it's absolutely a different skill set. Uh, and and that business side of it and that that ability to be flexible in the way that you approach a problem is is very, very distinct. And it's something I don't think you can find anywhere. Like you're never going to find the same mentality at a law firm. Right. right. You know, and thinking about like understand. Yes, you have. I, I think you've got to you've got to be a good lawyer. Right. It's sort of the bar is like you have to have solid legal skills you have to be able to to think like a lawyer really well and you have to be able to to actually articulate positions effectively but there's so much more beyond it right and once you start to get into the understanding of the business implications of what's going on a lot of the things that people deem to be you know, maybe more risky approaches or things like that actually become a lot less risky in, in the grand scheme of the business, right? I couldn't agree more. And I use almost that exact line in telling my students, like how I spend my time when I'm negotiating contracts is probably 80% on the commercial stuff and 20% on my standard legal terms and conditions, you know, your indemnification, your boilerplate stuff. Um, because when you draft well scope of work and services and how pricing works and what happens when one party doesn't do one thing not the legal stuff when you draft the rest of the commercial deal well usually you don't have to get to the rest of the legal term so so much of it is beyond the base skills like you're not spending your time you know negotiating the words on a limitations of liability clause not usually most of my time is writing out all of the ways that the limitation of liability clause might come into effect you know and what are the the beyond the the very small box of breach of contract right like right. Right? you have to really really think my my questioning process and my students and like we go through these exercises at the beginning of every class it's it's just something i put together that is it's it's two questions. What's the worst that could happen 
and then what, right? Like, so just continuing to push down. So when someone, everyone's going to talk, if I programmed into, you know, Google or even chat GPT now, like, you know, what, what, what is the best, you know, what is a skill necessary for in-house counsel? And it's always going to be like having an understanding of the business. Well, what does that mean? Right. How do you develop that understanding of the business? And it's so much more than just the words understanding the business. It's understanding margins and cash flow and how your product is made and who your suppliers are and who your competition is and having an understanding of your market share within the industry and how all of those pieces come together to form the widgets that you make or the services that you sell. Um, and then thinking from the litigation side, right? Like if you were hit with a lawsuit today um, for your company not providing the services or manufacturing the goods correctly, like what would that lawsuit be for? What could go wrong? And then just kind of deep diving that. So when you come back to drafting, you come back to negotiating, you can craft an instrument, a contract vehicle that actually considers the, the actual consequences that could come from it. It's not just saying we will provide 45 hours of engineering services, right? Like you're going beyond that and you're writing it out in a way that there it's quantifiable and measurable. More often than not, when I think about entering a contract negotiation, I'll give on just about anything if the other side can put into context why that's important for their business and the future of their business. Yep. Right. Same. And and it's like, OK, I get it. Like, I, I get what you're saying. And it can't be like, oh, there's a data breach. And so unlimited liability because it's our company would go to zero. Like, that's not a meaningful. Why is this important to your company? That's that's like you read that on on the Internet somewhere. Right. Right. Or uh, I mean, by asking that question, Tim, and, you know, kind of having them quantify what the concern is. If you can't accept it just as they proposed it, you can certainly create responsive language or or reduce the scope of whatever, you know, the clauses that they want to include or change the red line to address that specific need and not anything else, right? And not to let it be some some kind of ticking time bomb in the closet that has a scope much beyond what the actual concern is. Exactly, exactly. And you know, you think about you think about like being able to articulate what that concern is is really it's really essential. And if you take it out of the context of the contract, it's, it's great. And, you know, I'll give an example from, from DraftKings. We had a, you know, we had a, a logo on the uh, Nesson sports network, right? The sports network that broadcasts all the Red Sox games. And we wanted to have our logo in like the strike zone uh, thing, right? Yeah. Like the, um, but we didn't want to have it in like the first inning or the ninth inning. Right. We wanted to have it at parts of the games where people are not like still getting home from work or if the game Going happens bad, to be a yeah. blowout, people have turned on, you know, whatever, you know, America's got talent or something like that. Right. So we wanted it in the bulk of the game, like the real mm -hmm. like critical innings of the game. And, you know, there were there were aspects of like, oh, there's creative control that we can't really influence and the broadcast needs to look like this and look look like that, blah, blah, blah. And so we eventually had the business people and the lawyers on the phone. And it's just like, listen, what are we trying to do here? Like, what are we trying to avoid? And it really ended up coming down to like, okay, we can we can do something better than at some point during the game, this will happen to let's just put it, you know, in, in a relatively static location. And like we had a range and it ended up being that the folks who were putting together the broadcast ended up putting our logo up in the exact same inning 
every single game that season. <laughs> you know, and that's um, that that asking that question, right? And like yeah. just kind of getting to that had no negative effect for your relationship, for the company, for the other side, but it made the spend that you were, you know, go, going to, 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 to utilize to have that buy is yep. so much more valuable than it would have been for spending the same amount of money without that qualification. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's just through conversations and, you know, a lot is revealed when you actually reduce things to writing. Mm -hmm. And so being able to being able to actually like get to a real problem statement through drafting, I think is just as important of a, of a role for the lawyers to play in the transaction as it is getting all of the other language right. Mm -hmm. It's highlighting those problems to the business people and be like, this isn't a legal issue, right? right. It's not a legal issue whatsoever. It's you business people haven't decided on this thing you should probably talk to each other and figure it out. Here's what my suggestion would be, but you know, your call. That sort and there's of a lot of work that in-house counsel has to do to kind of earn that credibility and that seat at the table, right? Like when we move in-house, you mentioned earlier, like in-house practice is its own beast really, uh, and, and it is. And there's a big shift from the mindset of like, being a legal expert and, and coming in with you know the subject matter expert on the law to business strategy which is what in-house practice is it is not the same kind of practice as you know private practice with a more you know family-friendly schedule <laughs> it's okay. much more than that it's you are actually and i i bill myself as this is part of my personal branding but it's also part of the reputation that i think i've earned at this point which is i am a i'm a business person that has legal background. Yep. I put myself out to my colleagues, to my my suppliers and opposing counsel as a business person who has happens to have this subject matter expertise in in law and transactional uh, practice because that's where I offer the most value. I actually think my business brain is at this point definitely better than my legal brain, but they work cohesively really well together and to practice at the top of your license in house you really have to develop those skills. You have to develop the business acumen, not just as a buzzword on your resume, but you actually have to learn business. You have to learn how to read um, uh, you know, quarterly earnings statements. You have to learn how to understand um, earnings calls. You have to be able to you know, manage and understand your own business's you know, financial struggles and hurdles and what cash means in your business, the cost of money. It goes beyond the like, you know, buzzword of of having strong business acumen. It actually has to have some substance behind it. And that's really the skills and, and the kind of thinking that I try to teach in my you know law school classes, but also try to embrace and, and empower my team to kind of think of so that our business proactively comes to us as a resource so that they want us in their sales meetings. They want to bring legal along as their business partner not as this check the box process they have to go through before a deal gets done. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's a meaningful difference between being being a business oriented attorney and being being a leader of a true uh, of what truly is a business function, which is the legal function, who happens to have some specialty, you know, that is as distinct as marketing is from product or something like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um so 
let's let's talk a little bit about wellness in the workplace. I know you touched on it, like you know, uh, just like law firm, but with different, more family friendly hours. Um, to, can you talk a little bit about uh, whether you know whether it's at uh, either anything you address at school, like in in uh, at Miami or at Airbus uh, OneWeb? How do you think about wellness in the workplace? I definitely get questions from my students on this because they know my background of practicing only in-house and my very unapologetic statement of, I went to law school with the intention of never spending a day in a law firm, which I have held to this day, <laughs> except for some settlement conferences and other things like that. Um, so I get a lot of questions. Uh, I do about, um, they're usually what you would expect, like is work-life balance possible and you know, can you, can you be a mom and have like a good legal career? And can you, how do you balance those kinds of things? So I will tell you what I tell my students and what I try to embody in my um, my workplace, which is probably easier than most because we have a, a multinational culture and French culture is much more um, focused on hours and 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 much more uh, vacation and maternity leave and everything else friendly than than our um, U.S. companies. Um, yeah, it's a what, little bit easier. What? What work did you get done with the uh, the French your French counterparts in August? <laughs> um, none. Yeah. May August. There, those just yep. there's not working days for friends. The company, um, company they take I work for approach to August, right? Like usually yeah. law firms are pretty much it's it's hard to find you know lawyers in August uh, in the United States. Yeah. Um, it's hard to find people in France in August. Yeah. <laughs> One of the companies I worked for before DraftKings. Um, was purchased by a French gaming conglomerate. And that was, uh, that was a pretty, uh, a pretty eye opening experience as I was trying to get the attention of the general counsel's office in France, uh, during the month of <laughs> August, it was like, this is a really important business thing that you should be paying attention to. Silence. Silence. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's Nothing. no out of office responses because everybody nope. is out of office. Just, just, okay. I continue to say to my my company for two of the last four years, we have had these massive um, basically GC department led initiatives that had like they, they impacted our ability to reach our company's goals and objectives and eventually all of our bonuses. And they're always in August. I'm like, we know that nobody is working in August. Like, can we shift this to a different month? Like, <laughs> this is like a trick, you know? Right. <laughs> um, but anyway, what I tell, you know, my students uh, and, and anyone who really will listen to me uh, on this topic is um, you can have it all. You just have to define what it all means to you. It doesn't have to be what somebody else defines as, you know, work-life balance or, you know, success in, in having it all. I wasn't planning on saying this, but I wrote a book with some, uh, some other female lawyers last year um, that was just called Women in Law, and it was defining what success means to each one of us. And the message in the story really was through these, you know, 20-some different uh, stories of female lawyers, like, you define your own, you know, strategy and your own goal, what success means. And, or what, you know, work-life balance means, or, or what being an involved mom and having a badass career means. Like, you define it, and then you get to set the parameters and, and the quantifiable, you know, steps that you take to, to have it. So, for me, it's, you know, mental wellness and health in the workplace. 
I authentically show up myself and I'm only trying to achieve my goals. I'm not trying, and I don't mean only like in a limiting way. I mean, I'm just not measuring myself by society's definition of work-life balance or what a good mom is or what, you know, having a stellar career is. I, I set my own expectations for myself and I manage, you know, myself to those standards. And I think we all have the ability to do that. There's more pressure earlier in our careers because, um, you know, we just spent a lot of money on law school. We, we have to start making money. We want to take certain steps to get us to the next level. But at the end of the day, um, really the, what I have learned is I, I need to, define what that is to me and who cares what anybody else you know if they think that that's success or not yeah absolutely i think that's an important part and you know for for me my view of you know what is work-life balance and and the importance of that has changed over the years um you know i i do think that there's an aspect of you know of of rigor that comes with those first couple of years i i like you uh have been fortunate enough to never have to work for a law firm. But that being said, you know, what what that forced me to do was really be extremely proactive in seeking out development opportunities early on in my career. And and that was that was something actually most of my development opportunities. I, you know, I my very first job I uh, I worked for uh, I, I worked for the CFO. And I worked closely with the uh, with the finance team, and um, I was a finance undergrad, which was good, so I could kind of speak the language a little bit. Um, but really, getting an understanding of of the business through them and how important that was. And every time I had some sort of a legal issue that I had to talk to them about, it was always. Well, how does this, you know, how does this filter through my my lens as the CFO, or, you know, or or, or any other member of the the executive team, whatever it may be, but what that did for me is forced me to do a like undertake my own diligence to become good at this, that, and the next thing. We worked with some outside law for I was the first in-house attorney for the company. I had no idea what I was doing, and. Um, and I had to, we had a couple of law firms that we worked with, like some some pretty good like Amlaw, like top 50 law firms that we worked with. And so I just asked my boss, hey, is it all right if I talk to these people? I, I want to learn more about this, learn more about that. And it was it was a lot of late nights. It was a lot of late nights and a lot of like, no, I can't go out with my friends or, you know, whatever that, you know, whatever else I wanted to do on the personal side. and and. I do think there's an aspect where, depending on where you want your career trajectory to go, no one's going to take you there, right? You've got to define that on your own and you have to determine, okay, can I still have some level of satisfaction from a work-life balance perspective and, you know, achieve realistically what I want from a, from a work perspective? And it, I think it just becomes a sliding scale. It depends what really is going to motivate you at the time. Now, don't get me wrong, like taking vacation, really important. You know, maybe taking off a Monday or a Friday or a half day Friday, particularly during the summer, like that can that can do a lot for your mental health if you're pushing yourself to work 12 hour days because you want to learn stuff and you want to mm -hmm. you want to advance. Right. Yeah, I agree. And we have a little bit of overlap of our stories there, which I didn't realize. Um, 
I, I similarly, I knew that because I was choosing a more narrow path of, of pursuing my in-house career that I had to work my tail off um, in, a, in a different way. But I also had to be willing to step outside. And, and I don't know if this is at all true for you, but I had to be step, out, step outside of the normal definition of what you're supposed to do your 1L, 2L summers or right after law school. And I will, I, I've never actually said it this succinctly or out loud before. So this probably comes as a surprise to some people that have followed my journey. I took two jobs, one in and right after law school, that were not lawyer roles, that yeah. I turned into lawyer roles with time and effort. And I took business roles that gave me exposure to contracts, that gave me exposure to how business worked. Um, one of those companies I worked for at Broadway theaters, like I said, and I was um, in a job that required me to buy products for less money and sell them for more. That was basically the high and low of what my <laughs> my job was. I was doing the contracts for those things too, but that was more incidental to the role and not necessarily the the bottom function of it. And as part of that, I took like from a manufacturer we were using in I think Northwestern Pennsylvania, we did this entire project. I went and spent weeks in um, Ningbo, China, learning sourcing and manufacturing and everything that turned me into the supply chain lawyer that I am when I was completely outside of a quote unquote legal role. Um, I was really doing like a business affairs kind of role that had a legal component. And that gave me opportunity understanding that, like we talked about earlier, of what the, what business and supply chain looks like and, you know, um, everything from, you know, QA at the end of the process and, and shipping and customs and freight forwarding and all of those different parts of the business that I then took to my next position um, that and I was able to not only understand how it worked, but then properly, you know, contract and negotiate for those contracts. So um, there, there is a little bit about, you know, the rigor comes out, maybe not just in long hours, that's definitely a part of it, but it's also in kind of setting the expectation for yourself that it might not be the same path that everyone else takes and not having the ego to let that stop you like in the pursuit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love the, I love hearing people's stories of a non-traditional path uh, throughout their career. It's, it's something that I think all law students should be open to. It's, it's an incredible way to actually make you a more dynamic professional. Um, I also and we have to do good as like experienced professionals at accepting those paths too. Just exactly. like, um, you know, 30 years ago, I think we're seeing like 90% of general counsels or, or CLOs are coming from big law practice, right? They're coming yep. straight from 20 years of big law practice into GC roles and companies because that's what we used to value um, you know, as, as, as corporations and companies, we thought that that was the key in, and a lot of that came from relationships, of course, but most of it was intentional design that's changing. Now, I think I read a statistic last year that was somewhat only 30% of GCs were direct from big law or, or, you know, comfortable mid-sized law firms into a GC role. And now we're really breeding in-house lawyers of its own thing. So we have to recognize that in-house lawyers, one, the path has changed and we have to value that. And we have to recognize other people's paths to in-house. If we want the business strategist, we have to stop looking at the GPA on a resume, seeing what tier of law school you came from and, and who you did your summer internship with. Like it has to be more than that. That's that's our obligation. Absolutely. And I think it's 
also reflective of changing expect expectations from the executive, uh, from the other executive functions. Now, it's not enough to just be a lawyer, and that's what you get with a lot of with a lot of big firm lawyers who come in house. They they start out as literally being just a lawyer, and if your executive is expecting someone who's not just a lawyer and gets just a lawyer, it's a pretty it's a pretty rude awakening, um, and I think. I think that's been the impetus for for that like that opening of career of alternative career paths to to in-house work. So I know Alyssa, uh, you've got a handful of things too on your end here. I do, yeah. So we do some like rapid fire questions at the end. So the first one is, what is your hot take about working in-house? Hot take: um, <laughs> get out of your own way. Um, what I mean by that, I, I tell my students, I would love to be like the Oprah of therapists um, for people in my life. Like you get a therapist, you get a therapist, you get a therapist instead of a car. <laughs> Do your work on yourself, right? Like the thing that holds us back in, as in-house counsel and just as lawyers generally is our own ego, our pride, our emotions, our reactivity. Like you can't practice authentically. You can't be at the top of your game if you're in your own way. Figure out what makes you tick, your triggers, what things are going to annoy you in a negotiation that are going to cause you to feel like you have to win on a certain issue instead of in the greater scheme of things. Get out of your own way. That's a great answer. The next one was, what's your number one wellness tip? I have a feeling you're going to say, get a therapist. <laughs> I mean, it works for many people. I, I Listen, wellness is... Part of that is a combination of what I said earlier, um, truly figuring out what it is that you want. Like, is your personal, you know, success measuring stick dependent on someone else's opinion of you? And you can find that out through therapy. <laughs> um, but like really just kind of figuring that out. So you can't you can't be well and you can't practice wellness without understanding yourself. So, I mean, kind of everything from figuring out who you are to, to what makes you tick, to what you're passionate about, to kind of the things that are impediments to you achieving them, I think is all critical. Nice. Um, another one, how about what is your number one conflict resolution strategy that you teach your students? Um, I don't teach much on conflict resolution, but I think I tangentially get it as things you know come up. Um, I'm really, really big on, this is like two sides of the same coin, but I think you'll understand what I mean. One face-to-face um, -face time, whether that, I mean, it could be computer to computer time, but like just actually talking to people as much as possible. On the other side, I despise meetings for the sake of meetings or extended meetings when something can be done in, in 30 minutes and not just scheduling an hour. Um, so I'm, I'm really big on just putting in the time with our colleagues. It, it, if we have one-on-ones regularly scheduled with my various teammates, like if we get there and we get on the call and we don't have anything to talk about, we're not going to waste 30 minutes, right? Let's get back to what our business is. Or maybe we'll even preemptively cancel. But I think the more time that we spend with, with each other, um, it, the better. It's it's kind of like the dinner table. Like we all, you, know, you go to restaurants and you see people that are just on their phones the entire time and we're not actually engaging in conversation. I'm really big on um, just transparent communication as, as um as it pertains to preventing problems as well as solving them. Great. That was awesome. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, Krista, really appreciate you joining us today. It was an awesome conversation. And we're going to have to do this again. Maybe Alyssa and I fly down to, uh, fly down to Orlando and, uh, you know, we can, we yeah, can come Today begins the months that end in R, so I guess you're not going to be getting <laughs> me off. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. <laughs>
Well, we I'd like... love to have you down here. I think of you know a tour of our facility, something like that, and let's have another conversation. Uh, this is fantastic. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate the time. If you like this episode, give us a like, subscribe, follow us on all the socials, and we will see you next time.